Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at Season 1, Episode 9, Utica. It is written by Alexandra Cunningham and directed by Jeremy Pedeswa. It was first broadcast on the 30th of October, 2005. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. Uh, I should do a bit of a summary for the episode as well. In this episode, Caesar settles into the dictatorship and plans his triumph. Servilia pushes forwards with her plans with Octavia, forcing Attia to retaliate. Cato and Scipio commit suicide, bringing an end to the civil war, and Varinus and Pullo attempt to settle back into society in the fat old bitch herself. And by that I mean Rome. That's a direct quote from the episode, don't at me. So Rhiannon, what did you think, broadly speaking, of this episode? Were you a fan? Were you not? Did it tickle your Roman? Just going to stop that there. (laughs) (laughs) I like the opening in particular. And as always, I love the attention to detail, the scenery. Um, The newsreader is always fabulous. Mm. Um, I wasn't as keen on some of the soap opera elements of the family drama. Yeah. I don't know. I I guess it was a little heavier on that side. So those who enjoy that would have liked this more than than I do. It makes it sound like I'm only interested when there's history in there, which I hope is not true. Well, actually, that that is what really comes across in your assessment because the start of the episode with Cato and Scipio, um, you know, giving up and admitting defeat and committing suicide was the only history-heavy kind of stuff because the rest of it is all uh, Varinus having disagreements with the local heavy in the Aventine, Varinus and Pullo coming back from war, the stuff between Attia and Sevilia. Yeah, I think that's the part that's starting to uh, wear on me a little bit. It's Mm. it's a little too much catfighty for my tastes. I mean, I do appreciate Attia in particular kind of being so powerful and manipulating and being given that power. But I'm not quite sure I like the way it's developing. Uh, It's becoming, as I say, very catty, very spiteful. I I have kind of reassessed the way I think of Artia as we've been watching this, though. Mm. I have to credit my friend Avon McMaster, Dr. Avon McMaster, uh, a Canadian academic who... Uh, I think she tweeted or messaged me when early on when I was saying I wasn't quite sure about the treatment of women. Mm. And she said she loved Artia and she thought of her as as kind of encompassing the activities of people like Claudia, who I think will come up again here today. Yes. That late Republican woman who's kind of clearly a power broker in Rome, mm. owns property, but, you know, has a lot of mud flung at her, but seems to be somebody who kind of enjoys her privilege. And... I think Avon's probably right that I was worried that Artia, apparent, you know, as far as we know, had a uh, was a very chaste and uh, unblemished person, had an unblemished reputation, and yet the depiction of her here was much more sexualized, much more manipulative and spiteful. Mm. But I feel like this is going a bit far in this episode. It's going very far, uh, very soap opera ish, uh, but this is also. I mean, you know, you take what you get. This is the most that we get from Adia in quite a while, actually, because she has been kind of in the 
background of the last few episodes, mm. maybe buying a bit of jewellery or something like that or, you know, getting something yeah. measured up for her. And-, and look, this is part of my issue as well with Artia, that whenever we see her, she's... She- even though she has been shown as this very powerful character, somebody who will kind of work for power mm. and is, you know, very keen to maintain that relationship with Caesar because unless it looks like he's about to lose, because through him she can maintain her family and maintain her power. You know, she always seems to be doing trivial things when we first see her, yeah. buying clothing, thinking about the colour of it. And, uh, I mean, look. It disheartens me a bit. It, it could just be Artia. I don't know. I don't know what to expect from the Real Housewives of Ancient Rome. But maybe that's the extent of it. You know, a bit of weaving. There was a lot of weaving in this episode. Depends what you're calling weaving. <laughs> anyway, so let's just <laughs> get into the uh, the defeat slash death of uh, Scipio and Cato, the most history-reliant section of this mm. episode, I suppose. Mm. So this opens after the Battle of Thapsus, which is near Utica. And you looked up the date of that. Did you say 46? Yes, yeah, 46. And it was the, we looked up the exact date in February 46. It was winter, you said. I mean, it didn't look like winter there, but I'm not going to hold that against them. It's Tunisia. Mm. I think even in February, it's probably fairly nice. So uh, in this battle, Caesar fights troops led by uh, former right-hand man Labianus. Mm. Uh, and it was one of the final battles of the Civil War. The Civil War kind of did spin out into Spain and get fought over there, I think, with Scipio's sons. Mm. But for narrative purposes, this is the end of this Civil War skirmish that's been going on for well, essentially since the first episode, really. Yeah, it's actually with Pompey's son in Spain. Oh, sorry, I said Scipio. It's Sextus Pompey. I think you were getting your S's mixed up. Sure, let's, <laughs> let's just go with that. <laughs> um, yeah, it does. And I have to say, I think the way it's often taught is this is the end of it, really, because mm. there's sort of this remnant of it going on in the West. But yeah, I'm not sure we take so much notice of that. Mm. There is a war in Spain, kind of ancient work. Um, now, I'm going to sound like a monster here. I really like the dying elephant. <laughs> I, I, I just like the effort that they went to mm. and, and that they actually, you know, elephants were there. Uh, they, they were part of the troops of King Juba, the first mm. of Numidia, who was uh, an ally of, of Cato and Scipio back then. So I, I like that they went to the effort. I don't like that the elephant died for the record, but, you know. Yeah, and it was kind of laid on with a trowel symbolic because of having the line about, you know, once they lie down, they can't get up. Mm. Well, Cato and Scipio are about to give up, in, yes. in essence. Although it's debatable whether the Romans would have regarded that as giving up. Certainly Cato doesn't. Yeah. Cato regards killing himself as the highest principle yes. in those conditions. We should go. Night is coming. They sleep standing up, you know. Elephants. Well, I can't. Once laid down, they cannot rise again. Is that so? I was not aware. So the suicide of Scipio and Cato, we mainly know, or this is mainly following the account of Plutarch, Mm. uh, which can be said for a lot of these kind of civil war kind of beats um, in this show. So how close was that to the source material that we've got? What, what did you think about these scenes? I mean, I think they worked well on a narrative level. They did. Um, well, not close at all, except that Cato does kill himself. He's with lots of other people, and it's, it's a much longer narrative. But they initially try to stop him. 
he kind of has to outwit them to get hold of the, the dagger to kill himself. He has a line where he says, now I feel like a real Roman or now I can, you know, now I'm in control mm. when he gets the dagger. And this is what it's all about for Cato and indeed the general ad- attitude towards suicide in the Roman world is that in certain circumstances, especially if you're a Stoic like Cato, where there is no viable way to live by your principles, then suicide is the correct um, recourse. Yes. So it's definitely not a you know free-for-all attitude, but it also isn't really connected with mental health in the way that we would do so. So something that should we should prevent, although his friends are trying to prevent it. But when it's depicted of a stoic figure yeah by the way all ancient suicides after socrates are sort of modeled on his suicide so the ancient greek philosopher Mm -hmm. who is forced to kill himself because he's you know the state tells him to that he takes it very calmly Mm. so the ideal is to carry this out calmly to not give way to histrionics and in literary suicides usually everybody else is going to pieces but that only shows us how strong the character about to kill themselves is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that definitely comes through here, although he kind of does excuse himself to go to the bathroom, sneaks a dagger out on his way. Yeah, which prevents any of that, Yeah, you know, trying to hold him back, I guess. Yeah, and, and runs himself through. Aquinas, this bread is stubborn. Give me a knife. Scipio, you have a tolerant spirit. If you can, you should make your peace with Caesar. I don't know about that. I shall do whatever you do. I wouldn't do that. Go your own way. In any case, let's not discuss it now. There'll be plenty of time for such sad talk. If you'll excuse me, I need to urinate. There's a piss pot through there, I believe. Plutarch gives us a lot more graphically. There was essentially, you know, entrails becoming extrails and him getting up and things falling out? Is that, that's the gist of Plutarch, isn't it? This is from Plutarch chapter 70 of Cato's life, Mm -hmm. towards the end of the chapter. So people have tried to dissuade him and in the end they've all given up and left actually. He stabbed himself below the breast. His thrust, however, was somewhat feeble owing to the inflammation in his hand. And so he did not at once dispatch himself, but in his death struggle fell from the couch and made a loud noise by overturning a geometrical abacus that stood near. Nice detail. (laughs) His servants heard the noise and cried out, and his son ran in. Um, They saw he was smeared with blood. Most of his bowels were protruding. Mm. But that he still had his eyes open and was alive. So he's alive through all of this, which is really awful. Um, They were terribly shocked. Um, They tried to replace his bowels. A physician comes in, and they try and kind of pack his innards back into him um, and to sew up the wound. So he recovered and became aware of this. He pushed the physician away, tore his bowels with his hands, rent the wound still more, and so died. Yeah. I mean, I can see why they didn't go for that interpretation. That's kind of snuff movie stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty graphic. And by the way, I think the... I haven't looked at the Greek, but I think that it's an older translation. Mm. I think bowels just means general innards. Yeah, yeah, sure. Not specific organs. Mm. Yeah. Nasty. Okay. Um, and, and then Cato's death uh, happens in that way. Scipio's death in the episode is kind of done during the cremation at the funeral pier, uh, sends his 
troops and everything away and has one soldier kind of slit his throat. Yeah, that's an assisted suicide. Yeah. Which I have to say would not be I've, I've considered got question as marks. brave. Yeah, about that. Accounts that we've got say that he, he does kind of commit suicide, but it's, it's much later. At yeah, the so the end of a different battle loss that truncated those two events. Exactly. Yeah, but I'm fine with that. Uh, Caesar commented, Cato, I grudge you your death as you would have grudged me the preservation of your life. So that's insinuating that he would have welcomed Cato back with open arms, uh, considering he did that with Brutus and uh, Cicero. Yeah, probably. He just likes his mates. Yeah, and I, I think there is an intimation in this episode um, later when we see Brutus, mm. of the reason why Cato can't accept that because you owe something Caesar something. Oh, yeah, he's got something over you yeah. then, yet you are always indebted to him for letting you live. So this idea that Caesar is just, just wants his mates to live, mm. I think, is is not the full story. Definitely Caesar, not. Caesar wants this power. Mm-hmm. I think that's true in HBO Rome and is likely to have been true uh, in reality, in antiquity that he's not happy to see members of the Senate dying, even if they've fought against him. But that's because he wants everyone on his side. And that's why Cato can't accept it. Mm. He's not like Cicero. He can't move around in that way. You know, I, I do love the way they portrayed him always in that very simple dress. Yes. Always in black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and he doesn't want all of the fancy foods and wine. And that is a marker of how hardline he is. Mm -hmm. So he lives by his principles and he dies by his principles. So that's why he can't remain around, unlike Brutus and Cicero. So a very nice segue in this episode uh, to the uh, action going from there to Rome with Caesar, who has just come back to Rome, uh, being welcomed and going to a theatre show. And it wasn't immediately clear to me that this what it was, a dramatic retelling of the death of Scipio and Cato, complete with big Roman pantomime willies and everything. Yeah, I think dramatic gives it a little more, um, I don't know, culture than it actually is. There was definite flourish there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this this kind of crude pantomime stuff, Yeah. Uh, the, the mime was a, a particular art form that we don't know an awful lot about, but we know it was extremely popular mm. and, yeah, full of... Uh, obscenity and these kind of i don't know they're almost school kid jokes aren't they that yeah, level yeah, yeah. and yeah. also that level just, of humor yeah, yeah, yeah these very unrealistic looking appendages <laughs> <laughs> and and caesar's there in the audience next to brutus with a kind of you know funny not funny look on his face mm. sort of like yeah I'll, I'll go along with this but i'm not really comfortable with how you're yeah it's interesting, isn't it, what Kieran Hines was doing there, that it is somewhere between this pleases the masses, so yes. we'll let it happen. Yeah. Buddha's looking very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, well, that could have easily been him, you know. It's like, oh, oh I fought with those guys. <laughs> I'd say that would have been me. I'd, I just find it very unfunny looking. Yeah. Everyone else kind of looking to Caesar to take their cue. Mm. Should they be laughing? Is mm. it okay? And, you know, thinking, oh, we got to play along with this. Look, this is laughing at the defeat of Caesar's enemies. Therefore, it must be good. But he's not exactly in uproarious. It's not like his sides are shaking with laughter. So yeah. is it okay? Bit of a dangerous play to put on, really. But... Yeah, it shows us how, <laughs> how dangerous the theatre could be. Yeah. Especially when it reflects directly uh, recent action. And mm. happy day on which the Julian sun has risen and banished Pompeii night. Forever! Happy day on which our brave soldiers have come home to their families. 
Happy day! Then we get uh, Verena Sampulo returning home. So they've been away for three years at this point when you take into account the, the Battle of Pharsalus, hanging out in Egypt for so long, being shipwrecked as well for quite a, a stretch of time, and then uh, going over and fighting in the Battle of Thapsus, which... Uh, later on, Varinus does relate to his children how there were elephants and there were a fort and he's like, you know, making a little play version of it on a table. Yeah, this is clearly the way they do it, isn't it? Because previously we had Pompey explaining what happened at Farsala. Now it's exposition to the kids. Yeah. Yeah, and scaring and, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we've we've already brushed over. We're not going to bother saying anymore that they're not going to show the battle because it would have cost too much. But this is, again, the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did quite like him explaining building. Was he using corks or something like that? Yeah, it was like, like little bits of wood and everything. He was trying to show what the... And then scaring his poor yeah so a, a lot's changed uh, for Varinus during uh, his t- time away th- three years his wife's having to run the shop which is literally a butcher's shop mm-hmm. now which is doing quite well because sheep are popular with sacrifice I like I like that kind of note yeah presumably the cheaper sacrifice not mm. the very cheapest but cheaper than something big like a bull yeah it's Pulo who makes the comment that um the slave girl Areni now speaks our language mm-hmm. so she wasn't really saying much before, but in the last few years, she's learnt Latin because, you know, you got to take orders, I guess. Was she a mute character before? More or less. I mean, she was traumatised yes. and there was an implication that's why she didn't speak. Yeah, But no. yeah, now she has learnt the Latin language. Yeah. I like that sort of stuff. I like how, you know, Varinus is always relieved to come home, but completely uncomfortable as to what he's going to be doing with himself. Because once again, like at the start of the show, he's coming back after a long amount of time away and is feeling uncomfortable about how much life has moved on with him mm. and probably not too sure about how to connect with his wife. Although it goes better this time. It does. Maybe because it's not that much amount of time. And Pullo just seems completely unconnected to anything. He's really got nothing going on for himself outside of the military. I think he realises that. He doesn't really seem comfortable in Rome. In some ways, he seems comfortable anywhere because he's got nowhere really where his roots are. Oh, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. Yeah, kind of. But in this episode, I think, I don't think it's been so much implied in previous episodes, but that he sort of feels a lack Mm. of some kind when he sees Varenus's family all being together and he's sort of left out on his own. But that's also why he's hanging on to a Rennie as much as he is. I guess that's one thing to anchor him. And also why he hangs around Verena so much. <laughs> He's got nowhere else to go. It's just like, give me an order. <laughs> you need someone killed? <laughs> I also like how it happens a couple of times in this episode. Anytime anybody sketchy comes into the little courtyard, He's always got a weapon close at hand, you know, whether it's deliberately put there or it's just, you know, this is something I've got here for cutting nails or something. Because he's, I think at one point he's wearing nothing but a towel. <laughs> Not enthusiastically that. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean about the towel. I, but I like that detail too. Mm. And I was, I mean, we'll, we'll come to the passage that relates to this, but I do feel like they do a good job of showing us that you don't just turn off being a soldier. These mm. guys are professional soldiers. Yes. And, you know, do you really want to take them on? Yeah, always prepared. Yeah. Presumably when they were camped out through all of those years, they'd have had a weapon close at hand. Yes, yeah. Then we've got a, a short scene with Octavian returning. So this is uh, his first appearance in a few episodes, maybe three episodes maybe. I remember him getting sent away up north. Essentially he stops to pee against a an aqueduct. Did you recognise the aqueduct at all? 
but, but you know, they you didn't see, show enough detail for me to say anything confidently. You've seen one aqueduct, you've seen it all. Yeah. I like that Tymon refers to Rome as the fat old bitch herself. <laughs> just, it feels very harsh. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tymon's getting more interesting, isn't he? Hmm. Uh, he will. He gets so little to do. Nice to see him again. Yeah. Although he, um, you know, he's been responsible for some of the most violent and disgusting, and will continue to be. Yes. Um, uh, acts in the series, but somehow a bit like Polo, I guess they managed to make him a likable character. Yeah. It's quite, it's, which is quite clever. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that actually, that will continue for both of them. All right. So Artie is having a dinner, quite a small dinner party, really. It's essentially art here and a few friends and enemies. Well, you know, we don't all put on vast banquets like you. Yeah, well, <laughs> so this is, I assume, to maybe welcome Caesar and Octavian home. Yeah, and if you remember, the, I mean, they must have broken the bounds of this all the time, but mm. the traditional Roman table layout seats nine. I don't think there are nine there, but it's, that's not huge. All right, all right, let me go through this. We've got uh, art here. Octavian, Octavia, Brutus, Sevilla, Caesar, and the chief augur. I've got seven. There you go, we're getting up there. Yeah. Cicero and Mark Antony were, unfortunately, we can't attend. We can't attend this episode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, it should have been nine. Yeah, that's They've right. They've worked it out. So, out here is dinner in which everybody's giving each other very tense, kind of long looks. Hmm. What do you mean by a very dated conversation? Brutus and Sevilla have a very dated conversation about Brutus coming back to Caesar. This was beforehand when she's getting yeah, ready. Yeah, so this is when Sevilla and Brutus are getting ready for dinner and Sevilla is essentially giving Brutus the stink eye uh, about coming back at all mm. still. But when you think about it, you know, a year plus oh, yeah, has happened in between this because Caesar went off to Egypt after... Brutus surrendered and Brutus has been back in Rome all this time and yet they're still having this conversation. That's what I meant by dated. I see what you mean, yeah, yeah that it, would she still be feeling that bitter about it at and, this point? And she might be because this is the first time Caesar is coming back mm. and this is, the, I guess, the Hit first time buttons. that they're seeing him since. But still, it seemed very... I mean, you've got that problem with this episode where so much time has passed, and this happens in the scenes with Varinus and his wife and family as well. For example, the children haven't really grown up yeah. in three years, have they? <laughs> They're really not getting enough food, are they, despite the, <laughs> um, the going concern of the butcher shop? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plenty of sheep going around. That's what I mean by that. Um, yeah, and so, so you've got a, a dinner with lots of longing looks. Oh, can and, we, yeah, sorry, yeah. can we just mm. hit one more thing on the Brutus and Sevilla conversation, which does seem a bit out of time. You're right. I think maybe stands uh, in parallel to the suicides of Cato and Scipio at the beginning mm. because the implication is that's what Brutus should have done. Yes, yes. All right, so they've kind of behaved in that correct, upright Roman way and Brutus has come skulking home mm. to get pardon from Caesar. And, of course, that's particularly hard on Sevilla because she has, in this narrative, she's been rejected by Caesar. So yes. she despises him. Yes, yeah, so f fair enough. There's a lot of motive there. But it's a kind of like go to Atia's place, grin and bear the dinner. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Brutus says, you know. We, we go along, we show face and, and, uh, and what have you. Please, mother, we will be late. Oh, we must not be late. That would never do. I do not want to go to dinner any more than you do. 
But Caesar has treated me extremely well, and we must go if asked. Honor demands. Honor. Honor. Not honor, then. Common sense. I cannot ask mercy of Caesar, accept rank and favor from him, and then refuse his friendship. What sort of man asks for mercy in the first place? I assure you, mother, I am not proud of myself. I am not proud at all. In lieu of a noble suicide, you shall have to be content with that. The other thing that is simmering in the background is that uh, Octavia and Sevilla are giving each other looks because there's apparently a relationship between them, which, credit where it's due, has lasted for three plus years. <laughs> You're obsessed with the timelines, It's Mac. just what is going on there? How did Atia not find that out at some point? <laughs> I did not like that plot line at all. At any way. It seems gratuitous to me too. Mm. We also get a couple of hints dropped into the next episode, which I kind of anticipate you're looking forward to a lot more than this episode. Uh, it's Caesar's Triumph I episode. Love it. Yeah. It's so well done. Yeah. It looks amazing. I can't wait. All right. Okay. So we'll, we'll I mean, we'll park the majority of our commentary for that. Uh, well, let's talk about the uh, strange creature, though. We can talk about it. Well, because Caesar does. Mm -hmm. uh, he notes a, uh, a strange creature that is, uh, he's been trying to bring over for his triumph. It is the height of four men with a long neck like a goose, spots like a leopard, and the speed of a horse. I don't believe it. A new chimera. I assure you, it is quite real. With any luck, you may see one at my triumph. I've been trying to bring one over for months now, but the wretched creatures keep dying on the way here. They do not like the sea. It all sounds very tiring. After this infernal triumph is done. So what he describes is essentially a giraffe. Mm. The uh, ancient sources that we've got, which uh, I've got a quote here from Dio, kind of struggled with the bizarreness of the creature. Yeah. And I think Caesar said that they've been having trouble getting it to roam alive. Yeah. Does he say it's like a camel with a long neck, but it, it's spotted? Something like that. He, yeah. sa he says enough to for us to infer that it's a giraffe. Which I think, and I'm sorry I didn't go look this up, but I think there's an attempt to explain it like that in Pliny, so slightly earlier than Dio. Okay. Dio reads a lot of Pliny. <laughs> well, they, they had trouble classifying it, and mm. of course that's why it's called a camel leopard mm. in Latin. It's kind of this portmanteau of camel and leopard, although that doesn't really deal with its neck. No, it doesn't. Long necks, but not that long. No, it's a good effort. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the platypus of the ancient world, I feel. I guess but so. We don't know how to categorize this. I would have loved to have seen Pliny trying to describe a platypus. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. In Dio's Roman history, uh, XLIII. Wait, don't tell me, 43. Well done. There we go, 43. I should have been a lot quicker on that. <laughs> Chapter 23, 1 to 2. Uh, he tells us that there was a camel leopard bought to Rome and exhibited, and uh, this was at Caesar's triumph. So there we go. It's all in that. Uh, his placement of the description can be and has been interpreted that the camel leopard died in the arena as part of the game celebrations. Not sure if we'll see one in the next episode. Well, we better. Fully cannot remember. But anyway, it's been name dropped and it's a good conversation piece. Yeah, and look, it is a reflection of how much power there is in being able to source these exotic animals. Yes, and put them on display for the Roman people, either in a triumph or in the arena, that it would be a lot of money, a lot of effort, and Caesar kind of bemoans the effort here because they keep dying on the way over, which must have been a hazard. Because mm. um, I can't imagine they were treated that well in the boats. 
And, you know, this goes back to earlier in the Republic with people trying to bring these animals over so they could put on lavish games and yes. win the love of the populace and their votes. Yeah, yeah. And it'll continue for the emperors. Sure. Right and, it, and it's always been, you know, the more exotic animals you get, the more kind of a statement it makes about how much, you know, power you have or what have you or yeah. how much of a display you're putting on. Yeah. It's a good lesson for Octavian. Yeah, you'll well. You'll need to be doing this stuff. He'll, he'll take it to heart. Uh, so on that note, uh, Caesar asks Octavian how he would put the Republic to rights. And Octavian has a, a couple of good ideas, which he, makes Caesar go, hmm, maybe put that young man in my will. <laughs> I would start a large program of public works, employing citizens and freemen, repair the aqueducts, levy the river, that sort of thing. I would create at least a hundred or so new senators that I could be sure were my creatures rather than my secret enemies. What is your point, Octavian? Oh, I do not mean you, Brutus. You're a man of honour. I believe that your capitulation is sincere. How nice of you to say so. He's got a prospectus in a way, doesn't he? He's got his political ideas lined up. Mm. Well, he says, series of public works and create 100 new loyal senators. And Caesar goes, hmm, good idea. Turns to the chief pontiff, who was last seen getting bribed by Caesar and Mark Antony from a few episodes ago. Well remembered. Yeah, yeah I, I, I really like that scene. It was a, it was a kind of a, um, you know, how much can we grease the wheels so that you give us the favourable symbol? The augury. Yeah. yeah, the augury. So that's that guy making a comeback. Uh, Caesar makes Octavian a pontiff. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning here that Octavian's good ideas are very easy for the writers to put together mm. and of course with the benefit of history we know what he did yes we exactly. know he increased the size of the senate we know he loaded it with people favorable to him oh my god the public Augustus works, publicly works yes. which he couldn't stop talking about in his epitaph <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is one of those and it happens so often in historical fiction that mm. because we know the outcome we can sort of plant the seeds of it mm. all right so now let's talk as much as we want to about the storyline with uh octavia and Sevilla. Uh, and there we go. That's as much as I would like to talk about that storyline. <laughs> well, we've got Octavian kind of looped into it now. Yeah, we do. So it brings back up the plot point from about five episodes ago now of Caesar having the epileptic fit and the, the assumption that uh, Caesar is uh, having it off with Octavian, or at least, you know. Octavian. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm oh, sorry. It's yeah. just so hard to... I know. There was an end him. there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and people might assume it was Octavia, but it's Octavian who helps him out when yes. he's having this fit. Yeah. And then Caesar makes him promise never to tell. Yes, and he accidentally blabs to his mum, and not about the affliction, but um, yes, yeah, so something was happening there. And he quickly, uh, she assumes that there's a relationship going on there a bit more than, you know, than should be. I don't know. She seemed quite happy with it at the time. Anyway, all of that's going on. And that was essentially three years ago. Yes. So now we get a kind of a suggestion, oh, more than a suggestion, now we get a situation where uh, a relationship, a sexual relationship between Octavian and Octavia begins to be suggested. Mm. Um, and I guess as a lead into that, when Octavia comes across Octavian, he's reading a poem of Catullus, who writes mostly love poems. Yes. Although some stuff having a go at Caesar. But this is one of his most famous ones, poem two, um, about Lesbia's sparrow. Lesbia is his unfaithful girlfriend in these series of poems. Yeah. It's a very famous poem where he says he wishes he were the sparrow because she kind of dandles with, you know. She, she gives it, it attention. She feeds it and mm. she, yeah. And actually the next poem in the series is The Sparrows Died and She's Distraught. Wow. 
But either way... That went dark. <laughs> it, it did, but, the, you know, in some ways even darker. Yeah. That Sparrow has been read as a euphemistic way of talking about the penis. Yes, so, I did find that interpretation. Yeah, so there's an erotic suggestion in these poems as well. Yeah, good poem uh, for this scene, really, when yeah, you think exactly. about all of it. We don't have to go through all the details of this, but uh, just in case people have forgotten or blocked it out, the sexual relationship between Octavia and Octavian is one that's spun as Servilia manipulating Octavia mm. so that she uses sex to get this information out of Octavian about what Caesar's weakness is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but strangely enough, Octavian realises this. But does it anyway. But does it anyway. And, you know, after the deed is done, he goes, ah, so now comes the price, essentially. Now here's what you really want mm. out of all of this. I assume you slept with me because you want to know about my uncle's affliction. And Octavia has kind of gone, oh, God, what have I done? And then goes and tells mother. We've kind of seen a parallel here, haven't we? Well, not quite a parallel, but um, marriage between sister and brother with Cleopatra. Sure. Which is the kind of Ptolemaic, because the pharaohs did it, mm. norm. And here it's a massive taboo. Yeah, absolutely. It's a taboo that I mentioned Claudia earlier and how Artia might be a, a kind of version of her. Mm. And it's something that Claudia was accused of, of incest with her brother Clodius. And Cicero was the one who accused them. And he's, he's using that for political motives because mm. he hates Clodius. So it's, you know, potentially quite unreliable evidence, but nevertheless shows us how this could be leveraged as a way of accusing your opponent of doing something dreadful. So we see how dreadfully it's perceived in Rome. Mm. Is there anything else you want to say about that storyline? No, All right. it really isn't. Okay. I could read to you. If you like. Little Sparrow, my lover's love, with whom she plays, permits to lie within her lap, to nip her finger, biting quickly with that bill. I should like to play with you as she and soothe my troubled heart. Very nice. You do not like it? No, you recite well, but I'm tired of poetry. Varinus is having trouble with a local heavy on the Aventine. What is his name? Erastus Fulman. Erastus Fulman, thank you. Look, at this is essentially a bit of a turf war. This is Varinus coming back to Rome after a few years and having trouble carving out his niche. As, you know, where do I belong in Rome? Well, they also portray him as somebody who's not going to stand by when the weak are being preyed upon. Sure. Because a guy's been beaten up and it's defending him that gets him into trouble with Erastus Fulman. I think Varinus is also just looking for a fight. Maybe, yeah. yeah that's why this storyline goes on for as long as it does in this episode. I, I liked it, but I also saw Varinus as having way too much pride. But, you know, that's him. A culmination of this, I guess, if we if we jump to that point, is... Caesar surprising Varinus and Pullo, which was a great scene because Varinus is there at pretty much the doorway of the courtyard holding a sword in each hand, expecting Erastus to come in there with all his men posseed up. And that was the way that they edited it to make you think that that was happening. But it was Caesar walking in with all these troops who took up formation outside the courtyard. Uh, so that was very well done. And I did like Erastus then coming with his men, seeing all the Roman troops kind of kicking their armour a bit to make sure that it's real and then sidling off innocently, whistling as he went. <laughs> yeah, I, there were lots of things I liked about that scene. It was very well staged. Mm. Um, and you were sort of expecting with the two swords, like he was going to do some ninja thing, which would have been completely inappropriate, <laughs> but of course nothing happens. That's the silence of the lambs 
misdirection, isn't it? Yes. Where you think he's knocking at one door yes. and it's actually... Oh, it's anyway, a, it's, a, it's a classic movie trope. I was about to say that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me just steal your words. Uh, but I also like that Caesar was accompanied by his lictors. Yeah. So the ceremonially protective bodyguard who With are the carrying fasti, yeah. the fasces, yeah. um, the bundles of rods and axes that show his power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's got an, an enormous amount of authority anyway that he carries with him, but all of this entourage yeah, just yeah. makes it even, uh, you're not going to stand against Caesar, obviously. It, it was quite an entrance. And Caesar had the little smile of Caesar knowing he'd made an entrance. Yeah. It was it was kind of a, ha, ah, caught you un- <laughs> unprepared, you know. Where's my water? <laughs> And he's very persuasive because uh, Varinus is, you know, as we know, a Catonian. Yeah. He is persuaded to become a magistrate on Caesar's behalf. It made it sound a little bit like Caesar's got a political party, which is not what happened. It's not the way it was run in, in antiquity. But of course, in this period where Caesar is dictator, we haven't really referred to that before, but mm. he's he's got this position of dictator that's meant to be temporary while the, the city's in crisis. Um, he does tell Varinus that. Yeah, yeah, he does. And yeah. he says it's all constitutional and he will give it up. Yes, he will give and it up. And he will never yeah. give it up. Yeah, well, yeah. So <laughs> so that's misleading. It's got to be taken from him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I guess in those conditions, nobody is going to take on any official role mm. without Caesar's say-so. Yes. So they're all Caesar's men, in effect, if they if they have any kind of position or magistracy. But I guess this is coming back to uh, what Octavian suggested at the dinner party, if you make yourself 100 senators who are loyal to you. Mm. But maybe this is also uh, Caesar realising that it's good if I've got one of the people of their own. And, you know, who else do I trust as one of the people who could do this more so than Varinus? Varinus isn't exactly what I'd call a yes man or even one of Caesar's people. No, and I think the suggestion is here, and this is a bit of a movie trope as well, is that Caesar doesn't want yes men. No, he That's wa- not he, the way he reads He Octavians. wants honesty. Yeah. I think we're meant to think he knows Varinus won't stab him in the back. Oh, that's an unfortunate <laughs> thing to say about Caesar. He knows Ver- at some point Varinus might say, I can't do this anymore, goodbye. Yeah. But he won't turn on him. He will be honest until the end. Mm. Your politics are not mine. I am aware of that. Were I a magistrate, I would have to speak. And you will not speak in favour of a tyrant. I will not speak against my beliefs. So yet another job for Varinus. And, and then we get to see this episode. Varinus makeover. Varinus in a toga. We do. Which was just lovely with them. Because the toga is very hard to wear, very hard to put on. So he needs help with it and he's not used to it. And then it's white. Which you know, really hard to clean. Yeah. So Polo touching it would have been a problem. That's so, right. He comes up to touch it, and, he's, and Niobe says, "Don't touch it. Yeah, get it dirty." Kind of slap on the hand. <laughs> and poor Polo, he Just looked. A slow bar. That was a that was a wounded dog kind of look. Sorry, Polo, to call you that, but you know. The one thing that we do get for Polo in this uh, episode is a scene with, between him and Rainy, in which he comes back drunk. He seems to be realizing that he's a bit lost in uh, in modern Rome as to what he can do with himself. And he tells Irene his backstory. This I found really interesting that he's the son of a slave mm-hmm. and he doesn't know who his father is, potentially a slave owner. Yeah. But anyway, there's no kind of mention to that. How did that sort of thing fly in Roman society? Wouldn't he, by extension, be a slave? And what's he doing in the military? What did you think of all of I this? Don't know. Maybe there's more to come out. He's got a Roman name, mm. so the implication is 
his mother was set free and maybe he was set free at some point or he's living under a pseudonym that would be roman law child of a slave is a slave doesn't yeah. matter who their father is yeah be the highest of the high either they're not they're just kind of glossing over that mm. um or possibly they were planning to reveal a bit more would you get former slaves enlisting in the army I mean, remember, if you are set free as a freedman, mm. you have a, a form of Roman citizenship, almost full Roman citizenship. So okay. Yes. All right. Okay. So. Yeah, this is a horrible ending. Yeah. Okay. End of the episode. I did like the statues factory. Yeah, me too. A little ching, ching, I wasn't, ching, I wasn't ching, sure about the, the bearded man. They could have been Greek philosophers, Greek philosophers. but they kind of looked like, like you Marcus know, Aurelius. 200 years later, <laughs> Roman emperors. Yeah. yeah. Bearded philosophers. So I like the backdrop of this scene, but we've got Sevilla uh, coming through on a litter and her slaves, I'm assuming, being killed and her attendees being killed or chased off and her being... Killed, I think. Yeah. Uh, her being defiled. Yeah. Yeah. Humiliated. Humiliated. Stripped, stripped naked in public. And terrible humiliation and for a Roman woman. Yeah, and a haircut off. Yeah. And the insinuation from this is, of course, it's Artia who is behind it. Yeah, yeah. And Timon is there to... Looking disgusted, even though he's kind of in charge of it. He is in charge of it because he says to his friend who comes up, look, there she is, off you go. Yeah, I feel like we've already had Servilia humiliated. So we this have. is, where are we going with this? More disgrace on disgrace. Yeah. And is it just to show us quite how ruthless Artia is? I can't really think of any other reason. Mm. So she's losing out in the war over... Her fight against the Julian family, I suppose. Yeah. And perhaps it's just the next step of what's going to happen between Artia and Sevilla that she's uh, humiliated to this extent, but she's going to have to take it further mm. next. Yeah. I'm on I'm on Sevilla's side at this point, though. At this point, I am too. But then again, how, how much of a free ride can you give her for what she did to Octavia and how she essentially manipulated her to that extent? Because that's a very long game that she's playing. It is a long game. It's been going on a long time. Yeah, it's had cursed tablets and everything in there. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.